Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. All right. And the last thing I kind of wanted to share with you was uh, during communion, you know, uh, the uh, song Cheryl was playing. Anybody recognize that song? Remember How Beautiful? How beautiful. Some of you know this story. But when I first met my wife, uh, I was invited to a church in, uh, it wasn't in Bedford, it was in Seymour. And uh, I walked in and I saw this, this angel. It's, it's this beautiful, beautiful woman dressed in a white gown. She really was dressed in a white gown. Like, What's going on? Very beautiful, and it was a white gown. And anyway, before the, uh, I think after the praise and worship and before the message, uh, Beth, it turned out to be Beth, was doing an interpretive dance to How Beautiful by Twyla Paris. Now, interpretive dance is not really my thing, but... She was really good at it. And, all, and, and I admit, as I'm thinking about the words of that song, I was just staring at her thinking, how beautiful, how beautiful. So I went up to her right after the song, interrupted the service and said, will you marry me? And she said yes. And here we know that's not exactly how it worked, but <laughs> it's close. That's kind of what I think of whenever I hear that song. And I, I think, how many of you would like to see Beth do that uh, interpretive yeah, I've seen a lot. Yeah. It's, not, it's not, not bearing witness with you? You want to give us a little taste of it right now? Okay, all right. Well, then, let's get into the Word of God. Oh, you can open your Bible uh, to Acts chapter 15. We are, uh, as I mentioned, we're, we're talking about something that's really important today. So please, please, please stick with me. I don't think it's going to be a very long message. I will try to hurry, uh, but I don't want to rush it. So I'll talk fast, and you listen fast, and, and we will hear from the Lord today. We are, where are we at in the book of Acts? We did kind of a review two weeks ago, an Acts review. And uh, so where we are, we're about A.D. 48, maybe A.D. 49, 18, 19 years after Pentecost. And uh, the church is growing, right? The Apostle Paul, along with Barnabas and uh, some others, have, uh, they've, he's completed his first missionary journey. And they have gone and preached the gospel, and they've established churches in Antioch and Syria, and then in the Galatian towns of uh, Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And they have preached in other places. And uh, after they uh, reach the, uh, the far end of their journey, they turn around and retrace their steps. They stop at the places they stopped on the way, especially the churches they established, to encourage their believers. And they make it all the way back to uh, Syrian Antioch, and they are encouraging the believers there. And it says they stayed there a long time. And while they are there, this is where 15 starts. And uh, again, I do intend to start moving a little faster through the New Testament. But this really is a milestone in the story of the early church. And it deserves some of our attention. Uh, and you need to understand some things before we get into this chapter. And some of it, it, it's nice the way this is working, the way this is unfolding. But you, of course, remember that the first Christians were what? They were Jews, right? 
They were Jews who accepted Christ as the Messiah. And we talked a few weeks ago about what a seismic shift it was when the first Gentiles were converted. When Peter had his vision of the blanket or the sheet that was lowered to the ground with all sorts of unclean animals, and he hears Jesus telling him, Arise, kill and eat. And Peter's like, I've never eaten anything unclean. And Jesus said, uh, what I've called clean, don't you call unclean. And this three times this happened, and then there's a knock at the door, and it's this delegation from Cornelius, the centurion's house, saying you need, uh, he had a vision of Peter living in this house, coming and uh, preaching, uh, coming in and teaching us. So Peter goes, lays out the gospel, and while he's still speaking, they receive the Holy Spirit. And this is a stunning thing. And he goes back and reports it. And they're like, well, praise God. That means uh, God is saving the Gentiles too. And it, did, it was shocking. It was surprising. And yet they had scripture for it. And they knew they did. It's like, no, now these scriptures made sense. Where This part where God talks about Gentiles who are called by my name, it turns out what he's really talking about are Gentiles who are called by his name. Turns out that wasn't code for anything. He really is saving the Gentiles. So they're not, this idea of Gentiles being saved is not foreign to them at this time. It's still an adjustment, but it's not foreign. But the idea is, what you have to remember is while 18 years, a lot has happened in 18 years, a lot of miles have been covered, uh, churches have been started, but this is still a Jewish religion. Christianity is seen as the full flower of Judaism. The Jewish story, Judaism, the Old Testament, they can all see it's all leading up to Jesus. It's not like this is so important. It's not like some guy named Jesus appears on the scene and says, ignore all that Jewish stuff. I've got something brand new. The whole Old Testament and the law and their history was just to bring about Jesus. He fits right into that story. And so that's why they were able to receive him as the Messiah. And so with that in mind, as these Gentiles are converted to Christianity, they are missing that backstory. They've got the end without the beginning. And so a lot of them were concerned that they become familiar with what led up to Jesus. Now it's amazing. The Holy Spirit is saving people. They're receiving Christ without this uh, burden of guilt from the law that was Jewish. Because God's law was, was actually in their hearts. They understood that they were sinners. They just didn't understand it from the Jewish legalistic standpoint. My point is the Jewish law and their history was still important. But how important was it? That's the question we're going to tackle in Acts chapter 15. Because what happened, while Paul and Barnabas are in uh, Syrian Antioch, encouraging the believers there for a long time, uh, 15 verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who rose up, who believed, rose up, saying, "It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses." I want you to understand: these Pharisees were believers. 
All right, They were believing Pharisees, but they were very much in favor of the idea of if we're going to graft them into the body of Christ, they also have to be grafted into Judaism. This idea of going straight from Gentile to Christian is skipping a step. All right? And what was the big thing about, uh, the big thing that marked them as Jews was circumcision. Now, we'll talk about this here in just a little bit, but uh, there is, there's some, uh, there's not universal agreement on what they're even arguing about. Some people suggest that the only thing they're arguing about is circumcision itself. Uh, I disagree with that, and I'll tell you why here in, in, in just a little bit. Uh, but also remember this, that there were a lot of converts to Judaism, pre-Christian converts to Judaism, people who, who were Gentiles who converted at the synagogue in many different of these cultures. Many of these different towns had uh, proselytes, Gentile proselytes to Judaism before Jesus. So it wasn't uncommon to find people who were Jewish by conversion rather than by birth. All right? And this is the, these are the ones the Pharisees liked. That's okay. We understand they have Gentile roots, but at least they became Jewish before they became Christian, and we think everybody should because it was very, very much ingrained. So, but these first five verses kind of let you know where things stand. You've got Paul and Barnabas on one side of this argument, and you've got the Pharisees, believing Pharisees, on the other side. And so what they're laying this whole argument out, this whole discussion out, to the apostles, James, Peter, and the rest. Let's read on here for a second. Uh, In verse 6, Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, they talked about this for a while. And they didn't all agree yet. Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. Now, this burden, this is where, and I've read uh, so much stuff in the last couple of weeks about this passage. And there is uh, one guy who wrote a very good article. It just happened at the end of the day, I ended up disagreeing with it. His, his whole point was the burden that he's talking about is just circumcision. Just circumcision. He's not talking about adopting Judaism as a whole, just merely the act of circumcision. And that's what the uh, Antioch Christians were opposed to and these other Gentile uh, converts, Gentile Christians. They simply didn't want to be circumcised. Um, and his argument for that goes back to Genesis. Do you guys remember... Um, back when uh, Jacob settled in uh, Shechem or uh, Shechem was the name of the guy but they also called the region uh, Shechem the Hivites 
uh, the Dinah incident. Do you remember when he settled, when he came back to Canaan, after he, he had his family, he comes back to his land, and then uh, that whole deal where uh, their sister Dinah was raped, uh, depending on how you read the passage, but there was, there was a sexual encounter between Dinah and the men of this town, and they said, uh, hey, we'll make it right. Uh, I just really want to marry Dinah. Uh, we can't tell really from the text whether Dinah was opposed to it or not. But the whole point is the brother said, well, we can't. It's just against our customs to uh, intermarry with people who aren't circumcised. But we'll make a deal. If you guys will all accept our, uh, our view on this, and particularly if you will all be circumcised, then we can share. We'll marry your women. You can marry our women. Share and share alike. And so the guys who are part of this discussion, they go back and they say, this is a good deal. This is a good deal. The women are beautiful, and we, can, and we can intermarry with them. Plus, we'll increase in cattle. We'll increase in goods. And so they all, it sounded good, so all the men get circumcised. And then it says three days later, while they were all in pain, the sons of Jacob go in there and kill them all. Really a dirty trick. But this guy's whole point in this article was this was such a gruesome procedure for an adult male that three days later they couldn't move, they couldn't fight. And so this is the burden that Peter's talking about. It's much, much bigger than this. It's much broader than this. Let me explain this. There is a uh, first thing I want you to see is this. We just read it. In verse 11, Peter says this, and this is important. I may have pointed this out before because it really strikes me when I read it. When Peter's making his case here, and he's making the case against circumcision, obviously, he says, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. It's very interesting and I think very important that he didn't say that they shall be saved in the same manner as we because in their mind, part of the way they were saved, in their mind now, I think if you'd asked them to explain it, they would have come to the right conclusion. But they still had it in them that we were saved through the law and then finally through Jesus. They understood it all; that it was all Jesus' work, but they came to the knowledge of Jesus through the law. But Peter's saying, you know what? We're saved just like they were saved, which is simply by grace. By grace through faith. There's no difference, no distinction. Pretty strong statement from a Jew. There's a lot of humility in this. Now, this really does get tricky when, you, when, you, when we read on. And let's read on before I, before I get too far ahead of myself. In verse 13, after they had become silent, James answered. Now, this is James, the brother of the Lord. This is not James, the, one of the original disciples. It says, when they become silent, James answered. And this is James, by the way, the author of the book of James. James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, After this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Remember verse 21 that's going to be important about Moses and the synagogues. 
So that's what they decide to do, but let's read it in the official decree. Bear with me. We'll just read this and then just a tiny bit more before we uh, uh, slice it and dice it, all right? Then, verse 22, it pleased the apostles and the elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them. Now, here's the letter that they send. Remember, the, the Antioch Christians are waiting. What are we supposed to do? Are we saved or do we have to be circumcised? What are they going to lay on us? What's the requirement for salvation? The apostles, here's the letter. The apostles, the elders, and the brethren to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you, do these, if you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. So when, they heard, so when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now this is really much trickier than it looks on the surface, because what are they doing here? You've got the whole law of Moses to talk about. The number one question was circumcision, but not the only question. Again, the broader question is, do we have to become Jews to become Christians? Or now that we've become Christians, are we only halfway saved until we are circumcised and become Jews? And so when James writes this letter, sends it with Paul and Barnabas, sends Judas and Silas to, to bear witness that, yeah, this really does come from the uh, apostolic authorities, they say, look, you don't. Those people that told you you had to be circumcised, they came from among us, but they didn't do with our blessing. We didn't send them to tell you that. The only thing we're going to lay on you is this. But then they lay four things on them, three depending on how you read it, all right? Don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Don't eat things strangled or with blood in them. I kind of consider those together. Or maybe they're talking about eating blood separately. And abstain from sexual immorality. Now, of all the stuff in the law we can quickly come to the conclusion that they are not saying, well, here are the most important things in the law. Because why not say, uh, don't kill anybody? Right? You can kill all you want, just don't, just don't eat things, something that's been strangled. All right? It, it, so we know it's not a matter of ranking the sins. There's all sorts of sins in the law, but these are the most important ones. That's not what they're saying. Uh, The decision they're making is the right one. I really wrestled with this. For a while, uh, I kind of landed on this. And don't think that I'm a heretic or that I would consider, you know, I prayed about this. I thought maybe, hey, look, we're reading, again, the Bible is true, and we're reading an accurate record of the letter they sent, but they missed it. 
I really thought possibly James just flat missed it when he wrote what he wrote, thinking he was so wrapped up in his own identity as a Jew that they couldn't break free from this stuff about meat sacrificed to idols, things with blood in it. Those those things were obviously a huge division between Jew and Gentile. And in that context, it's easy to say that these things are a concession to the culture, simply a matter of preferring one another. He's writing this to Gentiles who wouldn't necessarily have any issue with eating meat sacrificed to idols. And what the heck does that mean? This is not something that's an issue today for us at all. But we talked about this a little bit before. You go down the streets in these these, uh, Roman towns, and they would have these little roadside altars where you could come in and, and pay your respects to your God, whatever. You offer, uh, you, you, you go to one stand and you buy a couple of birds or you buy a, an animal and then you take it into the, uh, this little house of worship where they would kill it and they would do whatever uh, with, the, with, with the actual animal and they'd offer a sacrifice to their God and when the sacrifice would o- was over, you know, and the sacrifice would often include a burnt offering, they would take this cooked animal, throw it over the wall to the next shop, which was a restaurant, and they'd slice it and serve it because why let it go to waste? And the Jews were like, this is polluted. This meat has been used to worship a false God. We won't eat it. The Gentiles didn't have any problem with it. Just because they worshiped their God with it, I don't even believe in their God. I'll eat the meat. But this was a big deal because the Jews didn't do it. But now it's Christians. What are the Christians supposed to do? The Jewish Christians weren't going to, they weren't, they didn't have to think twice about it. They just weren't going to do it. But the Gentiles are like, now do we have to do that too? And James is saying, you know what? You do. Don't do this. Now, it, Never mind, I'll come back to that. I think what he's saying is at this time, in this place, these are things that everybody in this culture identifies with pagan practices. All right? By the way, it's noteworthy that the Christians in Antioch, when they got this letter, had no problem with that. What's it say? They rejoiced. Did they just rejoice because I don't have to be circumcised? I'm sure that was a big part of it. But they were more than okay with this. Oh, man, absolutely willing to not eat meat sacrificed to idols, things strangled, things with blood. So we can see that here's the issue. Look, we're living in a culture where everybody, whether they're worshiping these gods or not, whether they have a problem with it or not, they look at somebody who eats meat sacrificed to idols as a pagan practice. Whether they personally have a problem with it, they expect you to have a problem with it. So have a problem with it. Don't offend them. Don't put a stumbling block before them, and especially don't put a stumbling block before the Jews. All right? Just don't do it. It's a concession to the culture. I have no problem with that interpretation. Do you know the problem I have? It's because look at the other thing on that list. Sexual immorality. That's in a different category. It would seem like they are either elevating the dietary restrictions to sin at the level of, of sexual immorality, or they are diminishing the importance of sexual morality 
to something no more important than the social mores of the day. Cultural mores. So which is it? I don't think it's either one. And again, this is to my limited mind, I think it's simply unfortunate that the letter doesn't specify. But here's what it boils down to. Again, these three things, or four, depending on how you count them, are all hallmarks of paganism. If you participated in one of them, you were assumed to participate in all of them. I had a friend at Canaan Land, a ministry I worked at down south. I won't share the phrase that he used because it's a little bit crass. But, the, and, but this is true. He would never look twice at a girl who smoked. Not just because he was opposed to smoking, but in his mind, if she smoked cigarettes, she was also sexually immoral. He automatically made that connection. Right or wrong, he all, that was just, if she smokes, you know she does this too, and he didn't want anything to do with that. that, was, that was a, a, somehow that was a connection that was always in his mind. And this is the kind of connection they were talking about back then. If you participate in this kind of activity, the world around you is going to assume that you also participate in this kind of activity. If I were to sum up the Jerusalem decree, I'd do it this way, or at least I would clarify it this way. There are some things we must do in order to be manifestly separate from the sinful society around us. Some of them are sin issues, some are not. But since these practices are pagan practices, let's not worry too much about whether we are bound by law to abstain and worry more about the message we are sending to society. Sexual immorality is wrong, period. But it is also closely associated to these other things in this time and this place. So how about we just don't do these things either? Sexual immorality was rampant in that culture. It wasn't considered immoral in that culture by the pagan Gentiles. It certainly was by the Jews, and it certainly was by the Christian converts. But all of these things were closely associated with one another. So I would certainly put sexual immorality in its own class when we're talking about this letter, and that's why I don't like seeing it just at the end of a list. And here's the thing. If all we had to go on, when, when, when we're puzzling through this, ah, why is it important to abstain from food sacrificed to idols? And why do we, how does that compare to uh, what, what, what he writes here in the same letter, same list, same sentence about sexual immorality? If all we had to go on was the Jerusalem decree, it might be a bit puzzling, but praise God, that's not all we have to go on. We've got Romans, we've got Corinthians, we've got Galatians, we've got Colossians, and these issues are addressed specifically and clearly. And uh, we can rejoice that God cares enough about us to make this stuff clear. Paul develops this in great detail, and he absolutely affirms that sexual immorality of any kind is absolutely sinful. And with equal clarity, he points out that eating and drinking certain things are not inherently sinful, but that in order to cause uh, others not to stumble, it is best often to abstain, at least at certain times and in certain places. Again, it seems foreign to us because the meat and blood issue is a non-issue for most of us, probably all of us. 
uh, here and now. Probably uh, the, the most analogous thing we have in our society is probably the question of alcohol, right? People will argue until they're blue in the face about whether it's a sin or not, and that's really not the question we're supposed to be asking. We'll hit this again uh, when we get in the epistles. Again, especially Romans, Galatians, Colossians. But here it is. Our mission is so important that it is necessary to put our responsibilities ahead of our privileges and our rights. Remember, this isn't just about us. Yes, absolutely. He has given us all things to enjoy. And yes, he loves us and he delights in our enjoyment of the gifts he gives us and the freedom he's given us. But you know what? We have all eternity to enjoy the pleasures that are at his right hand. It's reasonable and sometimes necessary to sacrifice and to forego certain pleasures, even if we feel we are legally entitled to them, in order to win the lost. This is back to this idea of sanctification, of separation, and that's what they're talking about in this letter. You've got to make a distinction between yourselves and the pagans in your society. And this is one important way we're asking you to do it. I can't wait. I've got to share this part from... Uh, yeah, I want you to see this. Notice that James did not tell them to wage a campaign against these things. This is important. He, they, there's nothing indicating that you need to go out there and you need to fight this idea of eating meat sacrificed to idols. This is a social cause. Try to wipe it out in your culture. No, 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 no. He's just saying you be different. You just don't do it. I got to share this with you from, uh, from Romans. This is kind of a preview of Romans. I just don't want to wait that long, even though it's the next book. But read this in Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 14. He's talking about our Christian liberty. He writes this. This is Paul writing to the Roman Christians. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. He's talking about food now. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. That verse 21, I believe, or sorry, verse 22, do you have faith? Have it to yourself. This is what my, my uh, paraphrase of that is. You've heard me say it before. You can enjoy your liberty without flaunting it. If your conscience is clean about a type of food or a type of drink, I'm not going to argue with you about the legality of it. But don't you dare flaunt it in a society that you know 
has a problem with it. That's the very least we can do. And this is we're talking about walking in love. Okay? We've got to be different. Back to this, uh, I want you to see something too. Because we're looking at the law, we're looking at this idea of possibly converting to Judaism to become a Christian. There's an important uh, line back there. Back in Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 19, Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, from blood. For Moses has throughout many generations those who preach in him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. And you remember the question we were looking at. The Jews understood the concept of Messiah because they, once their eyes were opened, they could see how the whole law, the whole prophets, the whole Old Testament prepared the way. If they read them correctly, that they were able to see, recognize how Jesus fulfilled these prophecies and even fulfilled the law. Jesus said it, it was a stunning thing. And I remember the first time somebody pointed out to me, he was talking about Moses. We're not talking about the prophecies. Some of the prophecies are obvious. You're reading in Isaiah, oh, well, that's Jesus. But Jesus said, Moses wrote about me, meaning he's revealed in the law itself. Well, the Jews could see this. And so the Gentiles were at a little bit of a disadvantage if they didn't come from that background. But what James is saying here is, hey, this stuff is important, and the Gentiles should learn it. But there are synagogues they can learn this stuff at. We don't need to restate the law in this letter. We don't need to to lay out this whole thing. We're just going to tell them, hey, look, you're saved. You're saved the same as we are. We're saved the same as you are. We have the same Holy Spirit. You're looking for some advice. Hey, at this time in this place, best thing to do, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Don't eat things with blood in it or things strangled. And of course, abstain from sexual immorality. The synagogue is there. Go learn about Moses. And you think, well, the synagogue was for Jews. We're only 15 chapters into Acts, but surely you have noticed by now that whenever Paul went into a new town, he would go to the synagogue, right? Who always came back the second week to hear him? The Gentiles. There were Gentiles in the synagogue. Many of them were. And, not, and some of them weren't full-on proselytes. But they would come. They would gather around and hear. And we're like, huh. And so even more Gentiles would come the following week. And that's when the Jews would say, well, hey, now, wait a second. This is our thing. And the Jews were, or, sorry, the Gentiles were hungrier for it. And so Paul and Barnabas would say, you know what? Jews, if you're not going to accept this stuff as it is, as a gift to everybody, including you, we're done with you. And we'll just go to the Gentiles. So I love that, that James is pointing out the synagogues are everywhere. They had synagogues all over the Roman world. And the, and the Gentiles had access to that teaching and that knowledge. And they could learn it. And they should learn it. It just wasn't going to save them any more than it saved the Jews. Sorry, I saw some people jump when I said that. Woke you up, though, didn't it? All right. So, there was a, I'm going to give you one example from uh, my time at Raymond. I remember there was a couple, praise and worship team, you can be coming up here. There was a young couple from India there who, uh, and one of the instructors was telling us about them. And uh, they, I think they were, I think they were second-year students when I was first, but, but uh, they knew that God had called them to do their two years at Ramah and then go back to India. And when they had been in touch, they were preparing maybe to go back or whatever. 
and they'd been in touch with their family. And their family was distraught. They were just crushed when this couple became Christians. This was a Hindu family. Uh, uh, they, and they, they said, uh, oh, you're going into this sinful Western culture. Uh, you're not going to be welcome back here. And they, well, we believe God does want us back there. We want to share with you. And the family says, you can't even be a part of our culture now. You've been eating beef. This was a big deal to them. They were polluted now. And they said, no, we haven't. They knew they were free. Here they were living in the land of Whataburger, Tulsa, right? All these great restaurants, tons of good stuff to eat. And yet they knew they were going back to India and they knew that would be a stumbling block. Not just eating it there, the very having eaten it. And so for the two years they were at Ramah, they kept Hindu dietary laws so that they could go back and say, we haven't polluted ourselves with this because they knew that meant the door would be open for their return. That's an awesome thing. And so the question is, first of all, aren't you glad we spent all that time in the Old Testament? You should be. You should have a fuller appreciation for your salvation because of those years we spent in the Old Testament. And also this. Let me tell you what the question is not. It's not what must I do or what laws must I keep to be saved. And it's not even what must I do or what, what can I do and keep my salvation. What am I allowed to do and still be saved? That's not the question either. The question is what am I willing to do or what am I willing to do without in order to win my neighbor? I think that's a pretty good question in this year of giving, don't you? Stand up with me. God being God, even knowing that in the grand scheme of things there was nothing we could do to save ourselves, could have paid for our salvation, but then demanded certain things of us before he would make it available to us. It still would have required exactly what it required, the death of Jesus Christ but then he could have said you've got to jump through these holes you've got to crawl this this uh, this far you've got to torture yourself this long and then you'll receive the gift he could have demanded anything from us what did he do he made Jesus Christ and his and, and the life that Jesus offers and the forgiveness that Jesus offers freely available What do we have to do to to receive that forgiveness, that righteousness? We have to believe. Just believe that he died for me. He died for you. If you've never made that confession of faith, I invite you to make it now. Look to the cross and say, thank you, Jesus, for giving what you gave. And that's the beauty of this. We talk about what am I willing to give? What am I willing to do? What am I willing to do without? What was God willing to give to make this available to you? Everything. The life of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, it's not a matter, again, of what am I willing to do to be saved? Because sometimes it's like, I wish there was something I could do to earn this. We can't. It's already done. It's already paid for. It's finished. But then the least we could do is say, all right, God, since you've done this for me, 
what is it you want? What is it you require of me? Because this is exactly what the Antioch Christians were doing. What do you want from us? And if you know what, we're going to lay any other burden on you than this. And this isn't for you to be saved. It's like, since God has been so good to you, we need you to abstain from these things in this time, in this place. So if there's anybody who'd like to give their life to Jesus Christ today, I want you to do it as soon as we start singing. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. You come up here and give your heart to Christ. Everybody else, let God speak to you. He can say a lot in the two minutes we're singing or the three minutes we're singing. Is there something he would have you to lay down? Some strength he desires to impart to you to make you a more effective minister in these last days. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this counsel. Thank you for the letters. Thank you for the revelation. And thank you for the explanation that you continue to give us in your word. Help us to recognize the things in our lives, in our culture, that we are to separate ourselves from in order to be more loving, in order to be more effective witnesses in this world. And I pray, Lord God, now, if there's anybody in the sound of my voice who does not know you as Father, does not know Jesus Christ as Lord, that they would come to know you today. Come to experience the life-changing, life-saving relationship through Jesus Christ that you've made available. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you come. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.